I said what I said. Nene Leaks. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is time for another episode of your favorite podcast. And then after that, give us a try. Felonious Pundits. Uh, we are another great podcast for you. I'm Kentad Spensgard. Along with me, as always, please say hello to my friend, Mr. AJ Mass. I'm here. That's right. I showed up. I was busy listening to another couple podcasts, but I'm finally, finally getting ready to record <laughs> this one. So, Oh, boy. What are we, AJ? We are Bologna's Pundits, and we like to talk about the show Criminal Minds. Each week, we recap an episode, and we're looking at it from two different perspectives. That's our that's our little thing, you know? I have never seen these episodes, and uh, am a clueless novice when it comes to the world of Criminal Minds. And AJ is a grizzled veteran of the show. He's seen every episode multiple times and still wants to watch more with me. So it must be a pretty good show. <laughs> Either that or you're just good company. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So folks, the uh, episode we'll be talking about this week is season two, episode eight of Criminal Minds entitled Empty Planet. This episode was written by Ed Napier and directed by Elodie Keene. It originally aired on November 8th, 2006. AJ, on the date that this episode aired, Donald Rumsfeld resigned as Secretary of Defense in the George W. Bush administration. And uh, Bush nominated Robert Gates to replace him. Yeah, and... uh... He was president, and he nominated someone to replace him, and I'm sure he was approved quickly. Imagine that. <laughs> Not a shock. Boy, boy uh, some things have changed. Also, I got to... <laughs> yeah, the way they have changed so much. Also, I have to let you know, uh, Microsoft was up to no good, releasing on this day Windows Vista upon the world. <laughs> yeah, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> Speaking of things blowing up from the Pacific Northwest, hey! let's get into our recap of the uh, show this week, Empty Planet. We start off with a bang of music and someone making a pipe bomb. We see them pouring the little ingredients into the pipe, uh, and we overhear a phone call being made to the National News Network, <laughs> and our uh, unsub bomber is saying there's going to be an ex explosion this morning. There's a bomb on a bus. I'm having Dennis Hopper flashbacks. But anyway, he says it will be on a bus in the city where it all began. And uh, it need he needs to get his message out. And the message is that this is only the beginning. And that until it is brought back under control, people will die. AJ, I'm, I'm sure the writers had in mind... A clue for fans of the show, as I recalled last week, the very first episode was in Seattle. And now our guy is saying, we got to go back to where it all begins. I thought that was clever. It's, it, I mean, you know, it's a little clever. It's, it's, it's one way of, one, I mean, you know, if, you, if you're going to 
go to Seattle, which is where this episode is going to take place, as we will very soon learn. Uh, yeah, why not throw a little wink, wink, secret nudge, nudge to the writers? You know, the writers' rooms can get very boring. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we do cut immediately to a bus stopping in Seattle. It's clearly a Seattle bus. It's got the word Seattle on front of the bus. Uh, so Really? How could you tell? We know now where we are. We see some people boarding the bus, including a shady looking dude wearing shades and a business suit. And then uh, we immediately cut over to the BAU office. JJ urgently walks in and ignores Reed as he tries to greet her. Uh, she just brushes right past him. Doesn't tell him how her weekend was. Uh, she goes straight to Hotch's office and tells him they've got Homeland Security just reporting a bomb threat for an unspecified urban area and that they need a threat assessment ASAP. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, might be why Rumsfeld had to quit. <laughs> I'm not sure that the two are related, but okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, probably it, happened, right. it, it, it happened that day. They filmed it earlier. They didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he found out it was going to air and he couldn't. Ah, All right. Well, he's good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Hotch tells her to get the team together and then we cut to the team together. Uh, listening to the call that we uh, just heard a moment ago. JJ says that in the last 20 minutes, uh, identical threats have been made to most of the major mo- news networks coast to coast. Same information, but slightly different words, which means it's not a recorded message or a script, which displays confidence on our unsub's part that this guy could have just called one network, but obviously he wants some attention. And Gideon lets us know that it's typical behavior for a personal cause bomber. One bomb has a finite impact. It's just a little explosion, but make a bunch of phone calls and your explosion is magnified a hundred times. They'll call two friends and they'll call two friends and so on and so on. (laughs) They are assessing the uh, other calls and Garcia says that they have all come from a restricted number, but two of the uh, news organizations have given her limited permission to trace the calls if they need to. Hotch seems surprised that she got a news organization to agree to a trap and trace, and Garcia reminds him that no one can say no to her. I would argue that Gideon could, but other than that, I think she's she's yeah, pretty uh, much you know, right. It's a bit of a flex in front of the boss, but Garcia pulls it off and Hotch smiles, so it's all good. <laughs> yes. Morgan says, okay, this doesn't seem like Al-Qaeda, because they wouldn't call unless they had already bombed something. And... uh The networks have decided that they will keep it on the down low until the uh, situation has been assessed. Hotch says this doesn't really feel like a hoax. And Reed says, this guy said it's only the beginning. The beginning of what? And also he said, until it is brought back under control. What's it? It's it. What is it? Great questions, I thought. It's it. What is it? What is Is it? Is it the one from Seattle too? (laughs) I think they're from the Bay Area, actually, but uh, well, you want it all, so. I can't have it. Go ahead. Uh, he has to call back anyway, is what Reed is saying. And if this threat isn't followed by an event, then no one would be taking any future calls seriously. So they think it's legit, basically. Garcia's like, so we're going to tell the media to go ahead with the story, right? <laughs> like, people are going to be bombed. We got to say something. And no, they can't because... 
threats like that with an unspecified location, that would just cause tremendous panic everywhere. So unfortunately, Gideon says all they can do is wait. Yeah, we've seen this before where, you know, oh, they all got poisoned at the same coffee shop. Let's let's just tell them that that it's a coffee shop. And everyone, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Was it my coffee shop? You've got to have the specifics. And that was just a coffee shop. This is a national bus. (laughs) Yeah. So now uh, we zoom into the map that's on the uh, big monitor and uh, zoom into Seattle. And then from there, we zoom to an overhead shot of the city and a nice little zoom even closer down to a, a bus, our bus that we're looking at. And uh, Yeah, we've, we've improved the technology. Instead of traveling by Kodak, we're traveling by Google Maps. So. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we're now on the bus. We see our suspect on there. We see him putting something under the seat in front of him. Uh, he pulls the cord to request a stop. The bus stops, he gets off, the bus starts to move, but our bomber has a detonator in hand. He presses the button, and we see an explosion that I thought was clearly coming from out of the front middle section of the bus, but not right at the front, but sort of like the middle part right before the front. It doesn't blow up the whole bus. It just, you know, blows out the window. You see flames coming out of each side. Yeah. But then the bus veers off and crashes into a car. Um, but it wasn't a huge explosion, is my point. It didn't blow the whole bus completely up. Right. It was not, uh, well, as we learned, it wasn't meant to do that. So it, it makes sense. Right. Uh, so our bomber uh, watches the thing, and then he just drops the detonator, which looks does look like my garage door opener on the ground, and uh, he walks away from it. We and the startled onlookers in Seattle see smoke billowing out of the bus, and it has a small fire on board, and then we go to credits. We are back at the scene of the crime, and Gideon voices over and gives us our opening quote. Robespierre <laughs> wrote, Crime butchers innocence to secure a prize. And innocence struggles with all its might against the attempts of crime. I, w- I would just want to point out here, if you, if you do like I do and you watch the closed captioning on the Netflix when you're watching these episodes, it, normally they're very good about figuring out who's talking. But here they just said, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to, had to uh, figure out that it was getting. You're right. When it's someone that's not on screen, they usually indicate who it is. It was a little bit annoying there. It's like, well, you know. Mandy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, our team gets out of their SUV and, and Reed says, so Seattle is where it began. <laughs> and uh, Morgan says, yeah, we just need to figure out what it is. Off the top of Morgan's head, all he can think of is grunge music and overpriced coffee. Basically, the only stereotypes of Seattle, I guess, well, you know, we are at the 30th anniversary of Nirvana releasing uh, Nevermind, so there you go. <laughs> there you go. Our local uh, agent this week, Nick Casey, comes up and introduces himself to the team. He says that they've identified the device as a small pipe bomb attached to an umbrella. And Morgan wants to look at the bomb fragments since we remember he does have Bomb Squad and Jigsaw Puzzle experience. They say, cool, we're gonna, we'll do, give you that access uh, as soon as our tech is finished with it. 
25 people were on the bus, including the driver, and the explosion killed two people, the driver and a young male, and injured another seven people. And Morgan's like, pipe bomb on a crowded city bus and only two people killed? And Casey tells him that the bomb had a relatively small charge, and the two dead were found closest to the bomb. And an elderly passenger named Sylvia Cohen had found the umbrella on the floor at her feet. And the young man had volunteered to take it to the driver for her. So, of course, she feels terrible about that situation. Hotch asks Casey if they've vetted and debriefed the rest of the passengers. And Casey's like, I I have their info if you want to talk to them. And Hotch asks if he got their positions. And Casey's like, what? No. No. (laughs) Hotch has to explain to him he meant the locations of where they were on the bus at the time. Um, So Hotch says, you know what, I'll get a real detective on it and (laughs) ask JJ to contact all the passengers and map out what their locations were. It seemed a little surprising that he wouldn't have thought to do that, the uh, local agent. He is still FBI. Well, this guy is more, I think, uh, he wants to be helpful more than he's actually helpful. He, He wants to... Uh, make it seem like he knows what he's doing more than he actually knows what he's doing. You get these from time to time too. Where it's like they mean he means well. He's not trying to be right. a nuisance. He's just he's an experienced. I mean, he hasn't done this before, and our, our people are the experts. So there there is that. Right. So they ask Casey if anyone saw anyone leave the umbrella. He says no. And by now we're at the bus, and I gotta say we see this grisly looking bloody shoe. <laughs> it's like ew, and uh, blood on the. Uh, the front windshield doesn't look like a pretty uh, crime scene. Casey, Agent Casey mentions that they think it was set off by a remote detonator. Uh, Reed says, like a garage door opener, limited frequency remote. Uh, yes, something just like that, Reed. Uh, Morgan says, well, that's risky because someone could have accidentally set off the remote just by pulling out of their garage. At this point, Gideon has gotten off the bus after... Uh, picturing the people on the bus in his head because that's what Gideon does. Outside, yeah, the team is still just saying the unsub probably needed to be close by. Maybe he was nervous. They may, That may have made him stand out. So JJ says she'll set up a PSA asking anyone that was in the area at the time to contact them. And Gideon says, well, no, we need to do a press conference, but it's going to be all about getting this unsub to call us. Which means that uh, JJ now has to not only track down all of the interview suspects, the interview passengers, and get their positions on the bus and hold a press conference immediately. Yeah. You know, it's like if J.J. and Garcia weren't on the team. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know, these he, cases would take a long time. Gideon would just be staring off into space and not to be like, hey, anybody around? Can someone help me? Morgan's like, I'll tackle someone for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me find a door real quick to kick. Uh, So we cut to J.J. doing her press conference, saying that they're still trying to determine what happened. Initial reports called it a bomb, but since no one claimed responsibility, we can't rule out some kind of mechanical failure. Supervisory Special Agent Gideon, and thank you, because now I finally know what SSA means when they say SSA, Mm -hmm. so-and-so. Super sexy Uh, admiral. (laughs) (laughs) Supervisory Special Agent Gideon is the contact. If you have any information that might be helpful, his number is appearing on the screen. And we cut to someone watching this press conference on his TV. And of course, he seems perturbed. 
as JJ is saying, and we'll keep you posted if there's any further developments. We cut back to JJ asking Hotch if he thinks that was enough, and Hotch says it'll definitely stress out this guy that his his message isn't getting out. Uh, She says, what if he doesn't call? And Hotch just says, well, Reed and Morgan are going over the device. Maybe they'll find something. Maybe. Let's find out, shall we? (laughs) Let's do so. We cut to Reed and Morgan looking at the detonator. Morgan saying the bomber could could have gotten this from any old toy store. You take a remote control car, attach a detonator like this one to the motor, touch the remote, and boom, instant 4th of July. A uh, woman walks in. So, of course, Morgan immediately introduces himself and, and Reed to her. Turns out she is Cassandra Atkins. But you can call her Cass or even Cassie. Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. (laughs) Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. And she's a bomb tech. She has put the fragments together before Morgan even has a chance, I guess. And uh, she shows them to Morgan, who does indeed seem impressed with her work. She says the bomb used dry peas. And Morgan is saying that he shows a shrapnel that wouldn't do much damage outside of a limited range. Why? What's he doing? Is he trying to limit his kills? And then Cass points out that the pipe has a picture engraved on it. And Reed says, it's a robot with an arrow through it. So Morgan is like, uh, anti-robotics? <laughs> and Reed says, well, the bus stop uses smart buses. Cass agrees. Basically, that's a bus that has sensors on it with the bus stop to like tell people when the bus is arriving and and whatnot. And uh, Cass agrees, says, yeah, the the buses all went automated last year. And Morgan is like, so he's anti-technology. Yeah. Two things about this scene here. One, you know, the robot with an arrow through it, it looked like my check engine light. I wouldn't have come up with robot with arrow through it in a million years. But okay, sure, you do, you read. Uh, And I think (laughs) this is probably, to me, this feels like this is our second audition for Elle's replacement because <laughs> Cassie's getting a lot of screen time. We learned her name and we're going to see a lot more of Cassie this episode. I, I think they're just trying out people and seeing who clicks with the cast. I, I agree with the theory. So meanwhile, Morgan decides to call Garcia. They have their usual flirty talk. Then he asks her to check domestic terrorist activity in the Seattle area, which is of course like, Nothing for her. She clickety-clacks away, and she says the Pacific Northwest is ripe with the disgruntled. Um, Morgan says, specifically anti-technology, and Garcia is like, ah, yes, my loony opposites. Uh, She does find some info pretty quickly about something from a month ago. A disguised young guy went crazy on a bunch of computers at a science lab, yelling out, we'll soon be the slaves and the machines, the masters. And Garcia says that would suck for her since she's surrounded in her little area. Um, and Morgan's like, well, you got me there to protect you. And that gets all, uh, Garcia all hot and bothered. Uh, and she starts, she says, all right, I'm going to upload the video. And uh, then we see the team, whole team looking at the video of some dude taking a crowbar to some computers. And I can't tell from the video, but I did determine that it was not Ron Swanson. <laughs> nor, nor was it Elliot Anderson from Mr. Robot. So, <laughs> okay, yes. which would have made a lot more sense given the robot with the arrow through it. <laughs> yes, I just like the Ron Swanson meme where he's throwing out the computer. Have you ever I seen have. that? That's they're, why. They're, they're, 
I wasn't poo-pooing I, you. I was... Okay. Just an alternate example. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Gideon does ask Garcia if she's got anything else, and she has indeed found an article about the St. Denis University newspaper, which last spring uh, said close to the school there was an internet cafe that was attacked. Someone created floppy disk bombs, whatever that means, and they uh, went off in four of the computers, and no one was injured. Reed's like, who uses floppy disks anymore? And Garcia's like, All right, Agent Brain. That was the point of the attack. They left a note that said, ultimately, you'll be as obsolete as your graveyard technology. And they signed the note, the FFT Brigade. And Garcia says that references Freedom from Technology Brigade, a, a, a fringe group that's been showing up a lot lately. And they ask her if there's anything else in the note. And she says, yeah, a drawing that kind of looks like a robot with an arrow through it. Uh, She uploads it for them. Gideon compares it with a picture of the engraving from the pipe bomb. It does look like it's a match. And uh, at this point, Reed says, well, Seattle's the birthplace of some of the most cutting edge technology in the world. And Gideon says, where it began. I think we're ready to give them the profile. I was annoyed by this scene, too, just a little bit, because she says it looks like a robot with an arrow through it. And Reed and Morgan do not even raise an eyebrow or blink. It's like, you know, you just saw the bomb had a robot with an arrow through it. She says that. Why are you waiting until the picture comes? And even then they don't react. It's Gideon who goes, hey, let me take a look at that. It's like, right. Immediately, like, like on the bomb. That's all you have to say there. You, you set it all up. It's so frustrating. I also think it would have been cooler if it had turned out, you know, where it began, IT, where IT began, information technology. But of course, he said it, and he said it, so you can't go down that route. Why did you just not have him say it? And, yeah. You know, have it in a note the whole time. You could have done the, the double entendre uh, that you love to do so much, but anyway. And almost to, also, to be honest with you, I almost said IT myself because, you know, when you write the word it, <laughs> it looks like IT. You're either, yeah, you're either talking. <laughs> Internet technology or, or, or some, some sort of informational technology of some sort. Or you're talking about Pennywise the Clown. <laughs> <laughs> so next we cut to our usual profile powwow. They believe that the unsub is local. They also believe that lethality is not probably his intention here. It's probably just fear is the larger motive that we're trying to get at. Uh, they think this guy is a, again, they mention a personal cause bomber, which is always motivated by an underlying emotional conflict. Reed gives us the example of Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. And here's here's where the scene fails miserably again. I just think this was a lazily directed episode more than anything else. But Reed stands up with Gideon in the background as if they're about to do a green screen <laughs> thing that they right. do. Except they don't. They actually just cut to... Pictures of the Unabomber for the next like three or four minutes, and then they cut back to him in this like clearly standing in front of where the green screen will be, and he sits back down. So basically, he just stood up and sat down for no reason in real in the real world because there was no uh, there was no effect. It was so annoying, right? (laughs) So uh, yeah, he goes a little bit into the history of Ted Kaczynski, who apparently had fantasies of becoming a woman. Got on a list to get a sex change operation and then changed his mind. He told his psychologist uh, he made a mistake. And then for the next 30 years after that, 
as Gideon tells us, he carried out his campaign of isolation and murder. So our unsub in our case is male. He lives alone. He's probably self-employed. He's highly organized, meticulous, very smart. <laughs> one interesting thing they pointed out, none of the past was in- part was interesting, but one interesting <laughs> thing that they did point out was that our unsub like his neighbors wouldn't have any trouble believing that he would be like, normally you see the neighbors on the news. Oh no, he's a nice guy, quiet, kept to himself. I I can't believe it. No, this guy, everybody would be like, oh yeah, he did that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a number three with a twist. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this guy's target appears to be technology and not necessarily high tech, but more likely the technology we're surrounded by, our ATMs, our our daily life technology, so to speak. In Seattle, they're talking about they've narrowed it down to maybe 10,000 possible targets. Oh, that's great. Casey tells Gideon that uh, he has a call coming in on the tip line. So they go into a, a private office. Gideon puts the call on the speakerphone and the unsub is there and, and he's mad. He's saying, uh, why did why did they say no one took responsibility? We called all the networks. And Gideon says, well, you know, the networks are incompetent. <laughs> uh, if you really need to get your message out, I'm the much better in the much better position to do that. He asks for the, the unsub for his name and the unsub is like, we're the FFT brigade. And Gideon's like, no, no, no. What do I call you? I want your name. After a little bit of hesitation, he says, uh, you can call him Allegro. And Gideon is like, so Allegro, let's meet up, talk about your message. And he's all, I don't need to call again. My message will be here when you arrive. And Gideon's like, what? And then our unsub pushes a detonator and we see a gas station across the street from him and a big explosion. Kaboom! Yeah, uh, really weird here though. They're they're we're going to come back from commercial and they're going to someone's going to say that it's the, the detonation device is the same and it, it really wasn't because we saw like you said the first detonation device was a garage door opener. Here it was he flipped something open and like yeah, there's a button that kind of looks like a garage garage button, but it's not the same device. No, I thought this one looked more like a. Where they were talking about the toy store, I thought it looked more like an RC car, yeah, like yeah. remote control car type controller yeah, or so, a plane remote control sure, car, something so a like that. Similar device, uh, similar in its cheap and ease of, of creation, but it's not the same device at all. You have both devices when they say this. That's what, oh, just lazy, yes. lazy, lazy, lazy. <laughs> Again, nothing's going to impact. I think the writing of this episode is pretty good, and I like this. I like this episode. I like the story, but it's just in watching it again, it's like, oh, come on. Lazy, lazy. All right. Fix these little areas and you'll be perfect. Uh, we do come back from break. And as you said, the gas station is a crime scene. Crime scene a crime scene. <laughs> yeah, Elon Musk <laughs> has divorced his wife. <laughs> and Grimes is there. <laughs> because, you know, technology, of course. <laughs> She's anti-technology, right? There you go. <laughs> what is the guy in charge of the technology? She is now. <laughs> Uh, we do see uh, Gideon looking around, surveying the area around him in typical Gideon fashion. And we cut over to Morgan, who can tell by the smell. It's the same explosive, uh, just more of it. I'm assuming it smells like split pea soup. 
<laughs> right. Split pea soup. Ah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, and Casey is there, and then she says the uh, nonsense about it being the same detonator, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Cassie, not Casey, because there is a Casey. Yes, Agent Casey. She's Cassie. <laughs> Casey and the Sunshine Band will show that, up. Why 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 would they do that? Lazy, lazy right. <laughs> uh, so um, Reed lets them know that the gas station closed 15 minutes before the explosion, and the worker had already gone home. So there's no casualties. Uh, there's an escalation in the explosion size and a decrease in the number of victims. So Hotch says we need to do a grid search. Agent Casey wants to know what he's looking for. Gideon says, uh, he said his message would be here when we arrived. So we cut to a bit later and Casey has indeed found something in the gas station. Shouldn't have been too hard since it was on (laughs) top of a drawing of a big robot (laughs) on the floor. I was going to say, it's a big, big, big sketch of a robot with the arrow through it. There's a big metal box on it which says FFT. It's in here. Yes. Message, message. <laughs> Open it up. Hey, it's the manifesto. Whoop, whoop, whoop. They had to organize a grid search for that, but anyway. <laughs> yes. So they found the manifesto for our bomber. They bag it for evidence. And uh, we cut back to later, back at the office, and Hotch is saying uh, the manifesto's main demand is completely unrealistic, which is... They want to stop all automated machinery that's replaced American workers within <laughs> next week. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, if these demands aren't met, he's going to detonate larger bombs. <laughs> and uh, Hot says, so we have an anti-technology bomber who's attacked computers, an automated cashier, an automated gas station, and a smart bus. And Gideon says, who calls himself Allegro. And this information sparks something in Reed, who recognizes it, the name Allegro, from a book he read when he was a kid. And the book is called Empty Planet. Ding, 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 ding. Episode title. But episode we hear title. It. Episode title. We'll hear Empty Planet a lot from here on out. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, which is a book that was written by the one-hit wonder Arthur David Hansberry. Do authors have one hit? Is, would you ever call an author a one-hit wonder? I wonder. Not really. I don't think so. Even if they only have, it's possible they only have one book. Oh, absolutely. I right. mean, you could have said that about the, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird before Ghost of Watchmen came out, and probably shouldn't have, from what I understand. But you know, it's just it's also just a weird phrase coming from Reed. Yeah, <laughs> Reed doesn't know what a one-hit wonder is. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> it doesn't. He does not. So, yeah, this book is uh, all about robots who take over the world once they figure out how to reproduce with humans. So it's about humanity being lost to technology. And uh, the hero of our book is a 12-year-old boy named Allegro who builds an army and fights for the humans. So we got to change our profile. We're looking for a 12-year-old boy. (laughs) 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 Although, yeah, Anyway, Gideon tells Morgan to call up Garcia, get as much info as possible on the author, David Hansberry. Uh, JJ mentions at this point that they she's found that there was a passenger on the bus named Dr. Emery Cook. She doesn't get into how come 
Agent Casey didn't find out this information, but uh, she says it's Dr. Emery Cook. He's supposedly a computer genius and uh, a pioneer in artificial life. And Reed has actually heard of him, of course. And he was in the seat directly across from Sylvia Cohen. The umbrella was initially found underneath his seat. So probably should talk to this guy, right? Yeah, he was probably, I mean, it all makes sense. Uh, this is a guy who was probably a target and, uh, you know, she moved the umbrella. So, uh, you know, that, that saved the day uh, momentarily. Again, it's, it's another situation where it's like we're in the room and it's like Gideon's like, hey, Morgan, why don't you call Garcia? <laughs> <laughs> like, let's make this four, four, four people removed from actual detective work. And JJ's just like, yeah, I, I found the guy. We're for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So uh, we cut next to Gideon and Reed, and they're talking to our friend, Dr. Cook, who, uh, you know, came to see them. And they ask him if he's received any threatening letters or phone calls about his work. And he actually says, never. He's put to rest anxieties uh, amongst people by sharing his personal belief that no scientific knowledge precludes the existence of God. Uh, now, what a pompous, skeptical douche this guy is. Yeah. He, for some reason, reminded me, like, this may have been past his time, but I felt like David Ogden Stiers could have played this part. I was, I was thinking he reminded me, that's, that's a good comp. I was thinking, just from his looks, Max Gale from Barney Miller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah, it's definitely that type. Uh, so, yeah, he says, uh, actually, Gideon says, uh, well, what about, you know, the ethical concerns that people may have about artificial life and dr cook says look they're concerned with manipulation of already existing life forms his work is artificial life which is far less of an ethical dilemma and gideon says well not for the guy who put the bomb on the bus yesterday <laughs> like, dude uh, this guy's trying to kill you Can yeah. work with me a little bit a little bit <laughs> a little bit please and uh, Reed says, our guy is obsessed with a book by David Hansberry called Empty Planet. Are you familiar with the book? Oh, not only is Dr. Cook familiar with the book, he's friends with the author. <laughs> yes. We, I'm friends with an author. What? Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't, don't mention it. I might get an umbrella under my bus. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, cut to Garcia. She's telling Morgan that David Hansberry is actually a pseudonym and that the real author's name is Ursula now, Kent. Now, I, I, I know you're, you're, you're getting through this quickly because Garcia clicky-clacks. And when she clicky-clacks, she's got the information. We would have found out this information in two seconds anyway. But here's, here's what I didn't like scene, about this yeah. scene. She's like, Morgan's like, it's an alias. Can you tell me who he is? And she's like, oh, honey, click She's It's not on her screen yet. She says, oh, honey, I already know. It, it, she's talking about it. It's not on her screen yet. She calls it up after she gives him the information. It's so frustrating that they edited it that poorly. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's a bad that, That's a bad edit. look. Like, come on. Come on. You're show, don't show her screen then. There's no need to cut away. Just have her go clickety-clickety-clack. It's Ursula Kent. It's a woman, you fool. Not a man. You know, hold your misogyny in a bag. But no, she goes, oh, I already know who it is. Clicky, 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 clicky. It's Ursula Kent. <laughs> I do like, I think it might be a uh, a subtle nod to Ursula Le Guin. We're talking about female science yes, fiction authors. Absolutely. So. I can go with that. 
Ursula, so. it's not a, a, a name you hear frequently uh, on TV shows. I mean, we got Casey and Cassie. Sure, that you can double down on real quick. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Professor Kent uh, happens to work at dun, 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 St. Dennis University. Where the floppy bombs took place? <laughs> yes, Morgan. Uh and now let's talk some sexy French to each other. <laughs> so <laughs> that happens. Uh and then Morgan is like, au revoir, crazy girl. And uh we next cut to Dr. Cook, who, yes, has immediately given us this information, proving the last scene completely unnecessary. I mean, look, it's always great uh, when Morgan and, and Garcia do the Morgan Garcia thing. I'm not I'm not poo-pooing that it's just Find another way to squeeze it in or, you know, don't have don't have the very next thing is having Cook talking about it. <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, he's saying Ursula Kent is brilliant. Every semester she gives a guest. Uh, he gives a guest lecture in uh, her class. Uh, Gideon is like, wait, she's here in Seattle. And Dr. Cook still with his attitude is like, isn't that what I just said? <laughs> I'm like, that's not exactly what you just said. You said you'd give a lecture in her class. You didn't say where yeah, she you could was. Go to Austin, if she taught at Harvard, it just me, me, me. Anyway, um, Gideon says uh, that our unsub. He he reads Empty Planet like it's prophecy. He's targeting threats to the survival of human beings, and we think he finds you to be one of those threats. And Doctor Cook is like, Nah, son. <laughs> I doubt Peace, that. I'm out of here. Uh, <laughs> Um, Gideon says don't you think the fact that you were on a bus and you're friends with this author is is, is some kind of coincidence or do you think it's a coincidence let me let me repeat that Gideon says do you think that the fact that you were on a bus and you are friends with the author do you think that's all a coincidence and Cook says a cognitive science once said Coincidences seem to be the source for some of our greatest irrationalities. And getting is quiet for a moment, so Reed decides he's going to start explaining <laughs> what this means. But Gideon quickly shuts him up, saying, I understood yeah, yeah, what I, it meant. I, I got it, Reed. <laughs> he's a pretentious asshole. <laughs> uh, so he tells Cook that he wants to put him uh, under a protective detail until they can find our unsub. But Dr. Cook refuses he doesn't want to be followed around all day by a government goon squad. He gets up to leave and passes Morgan, who was coming up. And Morgan's like, goon squad? Uh, and Gideon says, you ever talk to someone who wants to continually show you he's smarter than you? And Morgan looks pointedly at Reed and is like, every day. <laughs> yeah, he even does that, that, like, with his hands. Like, he presents Reed to Gideon, like, oh, look, yeah. right here, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was a very funny moment. That was uh, a very, very, very good character moment there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Morgan has come to tell them what Garcia found out about Ursula Kent, which, of course, they already just found out. <laughs> but so but JJ is going to do him one better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because Morgan's of course like, oh, yeah, JJ's going to talk to Kent, and we can go visit her anytime. It's all clear. <laughs> Thank you, JJ. Exactly. Doing some actual work. <laughs> Actually doing the job. Yep. So Gideon says, let's go. Uh, Reed mentions that he wants to stop at a bookstore along the way. 
and pick up a copy of Empty Planet because, after all, he hasn't uh, read the book since he was six. Uh, and uh, Morgan's like, I was still riding my big wheel at six. And uh, Reed is like, don't worry, it'll only take about 10 minutes. And and they're like, well, to buy it or read it? And Reed says both, actually, which I didn't really get. It's it's going to take him 10 minutes to buy it? I, anyway. It's funny. It's going to take him 10 minutes to buy it and only 10 I, minutes to read it. That's, that's funny. Again, all right. showing how smart he is all, all right. the time. It's proven what Morgan just said. So it's, it's, it's a nice little button on the scene. Don't poo-poo a button. It's a nice button. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. I won't poo-poo it. Uh, I like it better after you explained it, but... Anyway, Gideon uh, does tell Morgan to have uh, Agent Casey set up a security detail for Dr. Cook anyway. Like him or not, he's still in danger. I don't, I don't believe him. I don't believe him. I think he's wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next scene we cut to is Dr. Cook. He's pulling up in some parking lot somewhere in his car. He gathers his stuff, goes to open his door, and then Boom! The car explodes. Cook got cooked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, dang. That was my next sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. I, actually, first I said, back from the break, and Cook is now cooked. All right. But you said it already. Well, you can edit it all out and take credit for the funny, funny witticism. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I like, I like to let the listeners uh, see how the pancake is made no that's not the phrase. how the scientist is cooked <laughs> how the scientist is cooked <laughs> how the sausage gets all right anyway so the car is now a crime scene morgan is explaining that this time the unsub used a compression detonator which looks like it was under the seat so once you sit down it arms the bomb and then when you get up the detonator is released and the bomb go boom at that point. Hotch said, yeah, our guy must have wanted to make sure nothing went wrong this time, i.e. nobody would move the umbrella. Uh, and, <laughs> I like that. I like, that's a good line. I, that was good. And uh, Morgan tells Hotch that uh, Gideon just talked to this guy and offered him security, but he refused it, and they were going to set it up anyway. Hotch doesn't think it would have helped in time. This guy used a compression detonator had to been set up while he was actually in there talking with Gideon and Morgan. So, cause otherwise it would have gone off when he got out of the car at the field office. Yeah. Um, nice job distracting him. Yeah. <laughs> Way to be an unwitting accomplice guys. <laughs> <laughs> so agent Casey says he'll get security to check out the tapes. We cut to Gideon in his SUV and he's getting a call, and it's from our unsub, who says uh, he's glad no one but Dr. Cook was hurt. And Gideon says, he wasn't hurt, he was murdered. And the unsub says, well, it's not murder when you're in a war. And Gideon says, this isn't a war, you're living in a novel, you're living a fiction. In his, you know, special Gideon way. Just Gideon is just, I don't comprehend why you're not sane. <laughs> He almost Shatner's. Uh, yes, he does. That's good point. The unsub asks Gideon if he's gonna meet his demands, and Gideon says, Yeah, stopping all automation within a week, you know that's impo- impossible. 
And the uh, unsub says he wants his manifesto to be printed in the Seattle Ledger by tonight. And Gideon's like, not the New York Times or the Washington Post. Is someone in Seattle important to you? And the unsub says, look, there's more work to do. In fact, he's visiting an old acquaintance right now. With <laughs> <laughs> the fine Chianti. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He'd invite Gideon, but they're all about to be very busy. Uh, Reed arrives back at the car, so I, that's where they were this whole time <laughs> at the bookstore for Reed. Book stuff, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he did get the book. It was the last copy, according to the clerk. This has become a popular novel recently in in sci-fi circles. So Hotch then calls Gideon and lets them know they got a call about a suspicious package that was found at the waterworks. And I'm thinking, oh, Monopoly. Do, do places <laughs> have waterworks? I guess they do. It just isn't something. It's right next to Mom and guys. <laughs> it's just not something you hear, not a way you hear it phrased yeah. all the time. But uh, so they're going to go on, on to the waterworks to check it out. Gideon says, keep them posted. The unsub did say they're going to be busy. Reed asks if they can go to the waterworks, but he's like, no, we're still going to go see Professor Kent. There's a nice little moment here. It's very, again, it's one of these things where I'm sure it was just the actors, but like they start, you start to pull out. He's like, hey, put on your seatbelt. Yeah. <laughs> he makes sure he makes sure he puts his seatbelt on before they pull. Yeah, out. I, and I like the way he said it. He didn't say put on your seat. He just goes seatbelts. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like this has happened before. You get the uh, the sense. <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's, it seemed very real. Yeah. So I, 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 Mandy Patek is very good at making these characters very real because he doesn't break characters to do these things. It's very, he keeps the character voice on when it's clear that that, that's, that can't possibly be in the script. It was just too natural. <laughs> so uh, next we cut over to St. Dennis University. Reed and Gideon meet our professor, Ursula Kent. Uh, hello, Joe Beth Williams. Hello, Joe Beth Williams. How are you? <laughs> uh, big chill. And many other things, but that's what uh, I remember her from mainly. Well, we'll discuss later. <laughs> Ooh, uh-oh. Uh, I'm glad I didn't look it up then. <laughs> Never look up the credits. <laughs> yes. No, but I when I recognize somebody, I'll, I'll – and plus, I saw her name. Yeah, it's Joe Beth Williams. Williams. Absolutely. Uh, Reed says uh, he's a fan of her work, not Joe Beth Williams, of uh, Ursula <laughs> Kent's <laughs> work. <laughs> and other yes. things as well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they uh, go to her office and they're explaining the situation on the way, how her book has become central to their investigation. Um, they talk about their unsub, how he's seeing this book as prophecy. He's attempting to save humanity by stopping the proliferation of robotic technology. And uh, Dr. Kent, is, Professor Kent is like, this is absurd, but they tell her that several sections of this guy's manifesto are actually just lifted sections directly from Empty Planet. Uh, he's taking up what seems to be her cause, and he's killing people for the sake of it. They're now in her office, and she says, look, Empty Planet is just fantasy, and they tell her, yeah, well, not to this uh, unsub. They tell her about Dr. Cook and how he was murdered by a bomber just an hour ago. And she does look legitimately shocked and sad when she hears this news. And I'm like, did you really know <laughs> Dr. Cook? <laughs> <laughs> like, now I'm going to have to get a new suit. <laughs> <laughs> 
we cut to what looks like a bank, but I suppose it's the waterworks office. I'm not, I'm not really sure, matter. but the <laughs> Cass is there. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Cass is there. Uh, she's saying clear, and she pulls out a pipe bomb. Um, she gets a lot of, you're right, she gets a lot of action this episode. Uh, um, she says this bomb is just another small charge. It's nothing to worry about. And Morgan looks at the end of it, and it's clearly the same uh, same unsub. It has the same signature on it. Agent Casey is there, too. Stop putting them together, show. <laughs> uh, he gets a call on his cell phone. It appears there's another bomb at the post office, so they have to rush off to the post office. They're not going to pass go. They're not going to lose $200. <laughs> right. Uh, we cut back to Professor Kent's office. Reed notices that she has a necklace on that looks uh, very familiar, AJ. It's a little robot-shaped necklace. Um, Professor Kent is explaining it was something a brilliant man gave to her before she di- before he died. It's very similar, obviously, to the signature that the unsub has on the bombs. And they confirm that she does wear this necklace a lot, especially when she's teaching. And they tell her that it was what was etched on the bombs. They also tell her about the manifesto the bomber once published, and they ask her to if she thinks she had a student that might be capable of doing this. She's like, one of my students? Someone who hates technology? Uh, no, she's a postmodernist. In her area of study, technological inventions are often viewed as art objects, AJ. Uh, <laughs> They tell her, yeah, but sometimes the biggest critics of technology are those of scientific backgrounds. And uh, like it or not, your students are going to fit that category. Um, they don't say like it or not. I added that. It's, it's all right. No one's going back and reading the script. <laughs> okay. uh, so Gideon asks her to read the manifesto, see if the uh, reading is familiar to her. She's like taking it. And Gideon's like, yeah, we'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of in a hurry, she, lady. <laughs> yeah. So she puts on her glasses and starts a reading. Uh, Morgan calls Gideon at that point to let him know that this unsub is really pissing him off. They're already at like the fourth location uh, of a bomb site within the last fifty minutes. All of them have been the you know little small bombs. Gideon asks what kind of locations. Morgan says. We were at the waterworks, the post office, social security office, and main branch of the library. So Gideon's like government buildings, but nothing really specifically involving technology. What's the purpose? Morgan thinks it's all a distraction to keep them moving around. He doesn't like it. They got to do something to get ahead of this guy. Gideon says Professor Kent is reading the manifesto. And Morgan says he hopes she reads as fast <laughs> as Reed. <laughs> And as Gideon, after Gideon hangs up, he says, uh, no one reads as fast as Reed. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we uh, then cut back to Reed, who is, yes, flying through the pages of of the Empty Planet book. And Professor Kent is just staring at him like, what the <laughs> hell is this <laughs> uh, guy? Um, Gideon walks in, hands her a piece of paper, confirms that it's her class syllabus. And it mostly stays the same every semester. Gideon notes she only has two guest speakers listed, Dr. Cook and Dr. Brazier. 
She says, yes, she always has those two. They're the only two that she invites. They speak to every new class. Um, Dr. Brazier is an expert on artificial intelligence. She has an office across town at Rolling Hills. Uh, Gideon calls Morgan to tell him that he may have yeah, I mean, you know, Cook is dead. <laughs> you got a name on this list. Yeah. It's probably a good bet. I, I, I think this this is not necessarily yep. difficult conclusion to make, but thankfully it is a conclusion that is made quickly. For we will now cut to a woman who is clearly Dr. Brazier, because why else would you smash cut to her if it were not? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, this actress reminded me of, do you know, I think her name is Ilya Vincent. Do you know who that is? I do not. She's a, a psychologist that would always show up on the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> um, I, don't, ah. I don't remember if she was, she was either a psychologist or she wrote like self-help books. But she was like a very uh, girl power positive. Uh, and I think she even, because she knew Oprah, I think she even had her own short-lived talk show. Well, that, uh, that would not surprise me at all. Everyone, everyone who has been on Oprah more than once gets exactly. the hard show. I think, you, know, you get a show and you get a show. Um, but yeah, she's on the phone barking some instructions at her assistant. Uh, she doesn't seem like the friendliest person at first, but. The, the, her situation will maybe get her to change <laughs> your opinion about her. But You're saying she's going to have a come to Jesus moment? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she gets into her car. Hotch, Morgan, and Casey, they're running up the parking lot steps trying to get there in time. But she's already in a car. She starts to drive away. Our guys manage to jump in front of her and stop her. She's like, what the heck? Uh, Morgan tells her, put the car in park. Don't touch the ignition. Uh, they tell her not to panic. They're the FBI. Uh, they confirm that she's Dr. Brazier. <laughs> she, she, and she's like telling her sister, oh, girl, I'll call you back. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, eh, you may not wish to be so nonchalant. But uh, <laughs> um, Morgan opens the door, looks under her seat and is like, damn. Uh he then explains the situation to Dr. Brazier. She can't move. Uh, she's got a bomb under her seat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I wish they hadn't set her up as being such a, a brusque woman. Like, you know, she was like telling her assistant, I'm the VIP, damn it. That's who we're saving the seat yeah. for. I mean, because then when Morgan stops, stop the car, stop the car. She stopped the car, opened up the door. Who in the hell you think you are telling me to stop the car? <laughs> Yeah, that would be great. I mean, no, not great, but uh, it, it just seemed like they set her up to have like a personality where she would like not just immediately turn timid, and she did. So right. that was a little weird, but okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. We we come back. Doctor Brazier is saying prayers to herself. I mean, I didn't write them down. Yay that I walked through the valley. You know that type of that the whole the she whole nine days. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Morgan is with her, comforting her, He's telling her she's going to be fine. Uh, I do want to give props to this actress looking like someone legitimately in this situation. Yeah, she's got the tears rolling down. Frightened. She's Yeah. Got the I, tears I going. She, I thought she did a good job. I looked her up and she she has not done all. She's done like one-offs on 50 shows, but she's never gotten like that big break, which is which is, I always feel bad when I really like one of these uh, one episode actors on the, on this show. It's like, oh, did they ever do anything? Yeah. No. Oh man. 
Aw, yeah. Cass has a plan. She's going to try to use something, some kind of device, basically to, to a lever-type device to put between the latch on the uh, bomb and the seat bottom. And it, maybe they can use that to depress the latch and then they should be okay. <laughs> and Hotch is like, should? <laughs> and uh, Cass says, well, if there's mercury, we got problems. I never really got an explanation to this. You know, do we not start playing Queen music because there's going to be trouble here? <laughs> I mean, I th- look, if it's still a simple basic bomb and that's it, that's fine. If there's some sort of right. liquid involved, that that could trigger a whole second set of fail safes. And then, you know, but this guy hasn't proven to be sophisticated in the bomb making, so we really aren't expecting right. that. Uh, Hotch calls Gideon, lets him know what the situation is, and Gideon and Reed, of course, are still with Professor Kent, who is still studying the manifesto, and Reed says, maybe we should get over there, but Gideon says they'd just be in the way. Uh, Reed asks about Morgan, so clearly they've gotten some more information than we have, and uh, Gideon says he still hasn't changed his mind. So we cut back to the car, and Morgan is still there, holding Dr. Brazier's hand, comforting her. Um, and Hotch basically has to come over and organ- order Morgan to step away from the car. And Morgan does his bravado line. You know, Hotch, you know I respect you. Uh, there's no way I'm leaving this woman. Uh, Dr. Come on, Bridge- Morgan. Come on, Morgan. Mo- leave the woman. Like, I said period. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Brazier tells him he should be listening to his friend. But Morgan's like, don't you do that. Don't you turn on me, Doc. I'm right here with you. Uh, Then he tells Cassie he's got one free hand that she might need. So she comes over to work on her lever contraption. And I don't think anybody lives for the hero moment as much as Derek Morgan does. Very fair. Uh, So Cassie starts to work on it. Cut back to Professor Kent. She's telling Gideon and Reed that besides the sections from her novel, she doesn't recognize anything in this manifesto. Just seems like some lunatic's ravings. And Gideon tells her right now, a young man he greatly respects and admires is putting his life on the line because of that lunatic. So the professor sighs and says, you know, she'll look through it again. Mm-hmm. She she didn't even question it. She didn't go any further. She, she's like... Uh... She knows Gideon is going to talk for another 20 minutes if she doesn't start reading it. <laughs> right. We cut back to the car. Cass is putting a mirror down under the seat so that she can see what she's doing. Morgan is still comforting and the praying and crying Dr. Brazier. And Cass manages to remove the device. <sighs> Dr. Brazier is saved. Thank goodness. I thought we were about to lose Morgan. Oh, yeah, and Dr. Brazier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny how Cass was walking with the little the thing over the bomb, like she was holding like a hot dish of food or something. No like, it movement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it did look a little funny, but uh, I Cass knew what she was doing. She didn't give us the impression of being incompetent. She uh, No. You know. She's auditioning for Al's yes. job. So... <laughs> so they call Gideon, let him know the news. Gideon looks relieved. And then tells him that they got to go ahead and blow up the car. Uh, Dr. Brazier's like, what? And he explains they want the bomber to think that they've succeeded in getting Dr. Brazier. So, you know, maybe he'll stop at this point. But uh, 
Professor Kent hasn't figured out anything yet from looking over the manifesto. And they ask her to keep going over it. They're walking out at this point. Uh, think about your male students. If there's anything odd about him, he's probably got a temper. She says she'll have her TA pull some files. And uh, Reed stops to ask her why she never wrote another book. And she guesses that this was the only story she needed to tell. Fair. Um, fair. I've written two books and people ask me a lot, well, you're going to write your third. I'm like, I don't have to. I, I wrote the book I wanted to write. I'm done. <laughs> if something comes to me, I'll write, but it, I, don't, I don't feel the need. I feel Ursula Kent in this moment. <laughs> Stop asking AJ, people. <laughs> uh. <laughs> First two damn books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i did you should too amazon.com um anyway <laughs> she's uh gonna be working in her office the rest of the night she tells them don't hesitate to call if they need to and uh so now we cut to the professor she's going over her papers she looks like she's thinking about something and maybe something has struck a spark in her um because she calls an assistant uh, asks her to pull the files for a student from last year named Kenneth Roberts. Then she uh, looks down at her own book, Empty Planet, kind of looks at it in disgust and throws now, it on the in garbage. In fairness here, you could interpret this one of two ways. You could interpret it as, I've been withholding this information from them and there's something sinister going on here. Or... I told them I can't think until if they're going to be watching me the whole time. And now that they finally left, aha! I I needed them to leave to think right. for a minute in quiet and peace. So I'm not sure which one uh, you're going to go with at this point. Because it still could go either way. Yeah. We go back to the uh, FBI office. Reed is working at a whiteboard. And Hutch says, uh, well, now they have evidence from five additional cases to go through. Sounds like it's going to be a long night. <laughs> Uh, of work for them. Morgan thinks, you know what? The other bombs are probably just decoys to throw them off of the trail of Dr. Brazier. And I think that's probably a very good assumption. <laughs> hey, Allegro told Gideon as much. She's like, you guys are going to be busy. Like, but I'm going to go visit an old friend. Well, that friend is clearly Brazier. And, you know, like, uh, I'm distracting you. I'm some wild goose chase. And clearly that's what's going on. Yeah. So, uh, Hotch happens to see Reed's whiteboard, asks what he's working on, and Reed says, well, it's a it's a subplot from the Empty Planet book. And in this subplot, Allegro discovers that he's adopted. He reunites with his birth mom and thanks her for having the strength to give him a better life. But ironically, he realizes that she has become a robot. This book sounds like, man... <laughs> <laughs> look, look it, it try some c.s lewis man <laughs> and i'm not talking beyond the narnia stuff man. take letters the stuff is weird. i know uh, i've read yeah. some c.s lewis so the uh, uh but yeah <laughs> uh, including a book called out of out of the silent planet yes close to mm -hmm. the empty planet yeah you're right uh anyway so they're saying, you know, this book sounds like a damn Greek tragedy. Well, Hotch says that anyway. Uh, Reed's like, well, it's not really played that way. Uh, his mother is actually incredibly proud of him and his final act. 
It's like the ultimate fulfillment of his destiny, proof that she was right to have given him up in the first place. And Morgan's like, so if he kills her, how do you know that she was proud? And Reed says, well, it's told from her point of view. The whole book is. Uh, It's like she's talking down from heaven. And Gideon's like, so the mother is the narrator? And Reed's like, yeah, it's really her story. And Gideon's like, oh, the only story she needed to tell. Hotch says, in order to fulfill the story, he's got to kill his mother. Now, Asia. (laughs) Yes, please, please. I don't know. Don't you think, like, Reed should have, like, given us this piece of information sooner? Like, yes, Allegro is, like, one of the protagonists, but... Really, the protagonist, if it was written from the point of view of the mother, would be the mother. And he, I feel like he would have given us this information much earlier. I don't know. They, You know, Allegro is the bomber. And so clearly the, the unsub, our bomber, is identifying with Allegro. So in terms of what we need to know, Allegro is the main character. And there's nothing to suggest that his mother's hanging around. So... I'm okay with this. It's it's the fact that they instantly at this point, Gideon has put two to two together and is like, oh, well, clearly, Professor Kent is his mother. <laughs> Only story she needed to tell. We have to go protect her because he's going to kill his mother. None of this has been established at all. Right. It, it, it's, it, it, it's very sloppy. And let I me mean, take us to commercial here with, with probably something that's going to make everybody watching this for the first time and go, wait, wait, wait what in the what? <laughs> Yeah. We do see a hand next when we come back from commercial. Reach into Professor Kent's garbage to grab the book. And and then we hear his voice saying, don't hate the book. Without this, I would have never known you at all. Mother. Yeah. And again, it goes back to what I was saying. Did she know that Kenneth was... The, the the bomber did she put that together did she know because she is indeed his mother is that what we are to believe by that and that she was not in on it but protecting him in some way i don't know and i still don't know and let's continue <laughs> yes uh so we're back with professor kent and kit and she's like kenneth did you do this did you kill dr cook He sees that she's read his manifesto. She says, yes, I thought something sounded familiar. And then he says, I know why you wrote Empty Planet. I know what you're trying to say. And she's like, wait a minute, you've really misunderstood this whole thing. (laughs) Uh, This book is a work of fiction. And he's like, no, it's a gift. She says, it's just a story. He says, basically, well, let me tell you a story. Oh, crap. Look, I am. I wrote one book. I am not a book editor or a publisher. Pitch it somewhere else. <laughs> he says uh, he had a mother who died when he was eight. And then several years ago, his father needed a blood transfusion. He tried to donate only to find out that his father wasn't actually his real father. Uh, so his father told him he was adopted He couldn't find his mother because the records were all sealed. All he knew was the only information he had that he was adopted 
26 years ago in Youngstown, Ohio. He then came across an article about Dr. Kent from Youngstown, Ohio, famous author of Empty Planet, how she had a baby she gave up for adoption 26 years ago in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, Dr. Kent says, yeah, but that's not the whole story. They go back and forth a little bit. He shuts her up, explains how he took her class, how he was right there, but she never saw him. How could she not recognize him? Uh, He realized the only way to get her to see him was to live out the book. But guess what? He did that, and now she sees him. This is their destiny. And she says, Kenneth, uh, (laughs) small point of fact, the baby I gave up (laughs) for adoption, it was a girl. It was a daughter. And he's like, shocked. And then he's like, no, no, that's a lie. Uh, she apologizes. She knows that he's in pain. He says, well, why do you keep lying to me? And meanwhile, during this time, uh, the FBI, I should have mentioned, has breached the building and they're making their way up the stairs and or, where you know, they're making their way to the scene. Uh, all guns drawn, you know, SWAT team with them, as well as our, our guys. As uh, the professor and Kenneth have been having this conversation, they have now basically come to the auditorium or or her lecture hall, uh, stage of her lecture hall. And uh, that's where they are, just to set the scene for you. Kenneth is still shocked. The cops bust into the lecture room. They call out for Allegro. They call him Allegro. They don't know his name is Kenneth yet. (laughs) Fair, fair. That's, yes. that's, that's a good script continuity there. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, turns around and he has uh, one of his bombs in his hand. He starts to argue with Gideon. There's a little back and forth between them about, you know, drop it. No, no you know, all the standard sort of hostage stuff going on here. Uh, Typical, uh, quote unquote, Mexican standoff uh, routine. Exactly. Uh, the, then Professor Kent notices a SWAT team guy. A sniper, basically, off to the side, and he's about to shoot. And she says, no, and jumps in front of the bullet that was meant for Kenneth. She's hit in the shoulder during all the confusion here. Uh, The team has come in. They've grabbed Kenneth. The professor is still, you know, breathing heavily, but she's still alive. Uh, And she's just saying, he's lost. He's lost. He just wants to know who he is. You can't blame him. Uh. Basically, she's been shot in the shoulder, but she's okay, and she just wants them to know that this isn't his fault. He just is trying to find out who he is. Basically, she's trying to protect him still. Which would make wonderful sense if she was indeed lying about it being a girl to try and get out of the situation, and this is indeed the son she gave up for adoption years ago. And in some way, she feels guilty about it. Uh, that would make sense. And it would be kind of ironic that the book she wrote ends with mother being killed. And here she is lying and perhaps bleeding out only to die, except it's only her shoulder. And they never really settle it one way or the other, whether or not she was lying or not. And I really wish they would have. <laughs> yeah. Put a bow on this one. We yeah, need to know. I, I, I just, uh. I, I honestly, I 
I think it plays better, you know, as as they take him off, like you know, because the question is for Gideon, like, is, is trying holding her hand, kind of like, I'll show Morgan to do a brassiere. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna hold her hand, yeah. uh, but like. He's like, he's like, look at me, look at me. No, that's great. Look at me, look at me. Don't die. Look at me. No, no, Don't close no, your no, eyes. no, yeah. no. He's doing his Gideon thing, but like, wouldn't it make more sense if he's like, why, why did you do it? Like, you should, you know, because he is my son. Like yeah. that would just been a nice little bow on the whole thing, and I just don't know why they didn't. Yeah, because otherwise, if that was not the case, then she just felt so bad for this guy that <laughs> she would jump crazy. in front of a bullet. <laughs> yes, it doesn't make any sense the motivation for her to to do. That. I mean, I I guess that she's caring and all that, but still, he he, he knows that he killed one of her friends, tried to kill the second one of you know, tried to kill her. Like this is not a oh some lost kid who's you know just done a few bad things. It's a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> you only jump in, the, in in the line of fire if you are indeed. The yeah, I, I so I I, yeah. I like that very much better. I actually was taking it as at her word for it, and that she was just being kind of weird, weirdly overprotective in this situation. But we'll never know because they never say. No, we're straight back on the BAU jet now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's flying home. Hotch is getting up from playing cards with Reed and JJ. He says he's going to be right back. He tells Reed not to cheat. And as soon as he steps away, Reed looks at his cards. Uh, did you count the cards that everybody had? Were they all really playing gin this time? <laughs> I don't, I, no, I, I didn't count them this time. They, they looked like there were enough cards that they were playing gin. But, you know, of course, uh, they're playing gin. So that basically means they're playing rummy, rummy, Rumsfeld. This was a signal to Rumsfeld. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See what I'm saying? You're right. right. Full circle. Oh my full circle. god. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Reed starts telling JJ that you know science fiction is deeper than you think, JJ, and uh, she tells him, "Hey, stop! I'm I'm gonna save you some time right now. Uh, I'm never gonna go to Comic Con with you." <laughs> Uh, which which leads me to wonder, at this point, how bad was that football game they went to? <laughs> yeah. I was actually scared they were going to mention the football game, AJ, at this point. I was like, don't say it. Don't talk about the Washington football team. <laughs> because uh, it, my prediction rides on them never bringing that up again. <laughs> it's still only season two, right? <laughs> we got a lot of episodes left. Yeah. A lot of chances. But, oh, by the way, <laughs> so, Jen... <laughs> Yes, JJ has Jen. That's right, JJ. Uh, you and you kind of hear Reed like counting her cards, make sure that she has it right. Like he doesn't, he doesn't believe her. And then maybe he says something a little about, "Oh, I just let you win." Uh, whatever, Reed. You know, JJ's the bomb. Absolutely. No, uh, no, don't say bomb. Not this episode. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Bad choice of words. Uh, Morgan goes over to Gideon and uh, sits down in front of him. He says. Uh, I hear you were worried about me. Gideon's like, excuse me? (laughs) And uh, he says, the bomb under the car. A young man that I greatly admire and respect is putting his life on the line. And Gideon shoots Reed (laughs) a look. And Reed is like, what? Did I say something? (laughs) Did I do something? (laughs) Um, Gideon tells Morgan, look, what you did with the bomb was stupid. 
And uh, Morgan says he couldn't leave that lady out her by herself like that. And Gideon says, I didn't say you were wrong. And what he said, I said, I said. And Morgan says he knew that and then puts on his headphones. Episode over. Yeah, some happy inspirational music to to bring us out. It ends all wonderfully happy ending for everybody except for the teacher who's got a bullet in her shoulder and yeah we don't know if she's all right know or not, nothing but... of her fate <laughs> <laughs> uh how about this episode aj let's bring out our bow barometer and uh see uh if we think the team won this episode yeah did the team win this week i am of the mind that they did i mean there was some good detective work going on they followed a to b to c to d and look it's not their fault that uh you know the first professor uh, the first scientist guy didn't want protection and you know that's not on them and yep. uh, because if it had been on them then they, he probably wouldn't have gotten in his car quite frankly they would have found the bomb and solved this case a lot quicker but that's not their fault they saved the other doctor dr brazier they apprehended the, the guy without him killing anybody else, we assume. <laughs> we assume Ursula Kent is still alive. Right. So, uh, and if she was deliberately hiding his identity because she was indeed really his mother, well, then that's, again, not on them. Uh, so I'm going to say this is a W. Excellent. Uh, you have our record now for so far for season two? Four, two, and two through eight episodes of season two. Excellent like it uh so next aj what we like to do every week is have a little quiz that was inspired on the episode we just watched yes indeed a quiz i like the trivia beat my guess is my other podcast which is somewhat trivia based but i like to bring that here into the criminal minds universe and see how much punditry you can do while i try to feloniously steal these correct answers from you let's go <laughs> question one inspired by our episode that we saw today, Ursula Kent, a.k.a. Joe Beth Williams of Poltergeist fame. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, she appeared as a police lieutenant in which of the following 1992 films? Which one of these films from 1992 did Joe Beth Williams appear as a police lieutenant? Was it A, Cuffs? Was it B, Passenger 57, was it C, Stop, or My Mom Will Shoot, or is it D, Super Cop? All four of these actual 1992 films, which one had Joe Beth Williams as a police lieutenant? Uh, Cuffs, the Christian Slater is, film? Yes, is that your guess, or are you just right? looking for clarification? No, I'm just... Uh... I'm going over them in my yes, head. Cuffs, the Christian Slater's film. I believe I saw... I'm just trying to remember if I, I can remember a character similar to that. I think the only one of those... Well, I didn't see Stop or My Mom Will Shoot because that just looked... <laughs> <laughs> dumb. Uh, I, I uh, did see Passenger 57 and I didn't see Super Cop, but that doesn't sound familiar to me. Um I'm wondering what that is. Uh, I don't think it was an, I don't think she was in, I, I don't remember a character, Joe Beth Williams-y type in Passenger 57. Doesn't mean there wasn't. 
and I don't remember that from cuffs. So I'm going to go with between the last two. Uh, just for giggles and laughs, because it was a ridiculous movie that I refused to see, I will say stop or my mom will shoot. Stop, mom, or we'll shoot your kid. Yes, that is correct. Stop, or my mom will shoot. Nah! Indeed. Super Cop A Jackie Chan import. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't yeah, remember that so, at all. Yeah, she was apparently a police attendant in Stop, or my mom will shoot. I just thought shooting and mom made sense. Good tie-in. Good, good fits for the category. Oh, yeah, I should have even thought of that clue. Did, so you no, didn't see that no, either? I, I, <laughs> that, that. Please, I, I really need Estelle Getty <laughs> pumping iron. I love me some Estelle Getty, shoot, shoot, but... Uh, I'm going to fill you with lead, you criminal. <laughs> Who's the unseven dish case? <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Oh. Out of the way, Morgan, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't believe I forgot Poltergeist, though, for Joe Beth Williams. I was trying to figure out... I know I know her from other stuff than the Big Chill. That, to me, that's the big one, but you know. Yeah. Uh, all right, question two. Question two. Let's see if we can go for two in a row. Jamie Elman, who played Allegro in this episode, a.k.a. Kenneth, uh, he was a record store clerk for several seasons of what NBC show, which ran from 2002 through 2005. Many of the episodes of the show focused on Dick Clark's TV show dancers. Hmm. No choices for this one. I think I don't I remember vaguely a show from that time period and I think it was about a bandstand show or a type show uh, it's it's a show that I never watched uh but I think the name of this show was something like and I'm guessing so I could be completely off base but I think it was American Dreams. Dick Clark's television show, uh, which had dancers over the years, was, of course, American Bandstand. The girl on this show wanted desperately to be on American Bandstand, so one might say she had American Dreams. Well done. Yeah. That, I, I like how my memory of random stuff is stuff I've never seen. But I, uh, I can remember <laughs> and the stuff you see and you get wrong. You're like, oh, I saw this. I know this. I know this. And you can't. Oh yeah, it, I right? can't think of it at all. Uh, but the ones <laughs> I never watched one episode of that show. No, but you remember. Sometimes all you need is a commercial. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, leads us to my favorite question of the week, as in every week. Criminal minds. I can get three for three. Let's. Oh, I just yes. Chill. Why did I say that? All right, go on. No jinxes here. <laughs> what will the plot be of next week's uh, Felonious Pundits episode? Criminal Minds, Season 2, Episode 9, entitled The Last Word. The Last Word. Is it A, a conservative talk show host is getting death threats? And the network is concerned enough to call in the FBI. Is it B? L, appearing via voiceover, tells Hotch in a letter what she really thinks 
of the BAU? Is it C? In a weird case of one-upmanship, two serial killers battle it out for media coverage supremacy. Or is it D? When the sole survivor of a plane crash dies after uttering the word Gideon, the BAU is summoned. <laughs> Ooh, I like that one. Um, I like that one, but I don't... Well, I never know with this show, because as soon as I say, oh, that's not likely... Suddenly, suddenly, suddenly like, uh, that's when Morgan erupted Jamaica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Uh... Even though I like D, I'm going to say my answer is the third choice, C, which was uh, the relatively comparatively boring and only comparatively to D, the, the serial killers one up, upping one another. We're going to be witnessing a weird case of one upmanship between two rival serial killers and you, sir, are absolutely correct. Three for three. Well done. Everybody wins this week, <laughs> except for Ursula Kent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, poor Ursula. Well, that was, I just think we need to stop the podcast, AJ. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> let's, let's, let's end it right there. Uh, nice. I'm uh, feeling so ecstatic. I've got a glow. I feel great. Well, folks, that's our show for the week. It was so much fun. Thank you for joining us. We hope you had a great time. As always, please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to spread the word and let your friends know about us. You can also write to us. We are looking for a second email at feloniouspundits at gmail.com. And follow us at our Twitter, at podcast underscore pundits. For AJ Mass, this is Katad Svensgaard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up! You turned me out, then you turned me on. You dropped the bomb on me. The Gap Band.